You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name's Sarah Temby and I'm an allied health educator in the Royal Children's Hospital Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program. And I'm also an education fellow in the RCH Education Hub. Today we have Blaise Doran, who is a physiotherapist in the Royal Children's Hospital Children Pain Management Clinic. And he's been working in this area for eight years. Today we'll be discussing chronic pain. Welcome, Blaise. Thanks, Sarah. So can you explain the role of a physiotherapist in the management of chronic pain? You'd hope I could. I'm (laughs) going to... Probably the best way I can put it is how I might explain it to somebody who comes to see me. Mm -hmm. And that is... I'm really interested from a movement and a physical capability point of view of what you're able to do and then how the pain might be interfering with what you actually want to do as well. Hmm. Um, So that's one way of putting it. Obviously, from a professional point of view, unsurprisingly or uncontroversially, I would be thinking about trying to rule in or rule out any potential neuromusculoskeletal drivers to the pain. Perhaps somewhat more controversially, I would be also looking at um, people's physical movement behaviours and seeing whether that might be a manifestation of something that's going on in terms of distress or other things as well. Okay, so you mentioned physical behavioural manifestations of distress. That's quite a mouthful. What does that really mean? Um, It's something I completely made up. No, it's... uh, (laughs) The reality is that we all have a a physical output sometimes to our thoughts, feelings and everything else. So I'm I'm not one of these people who's particularly Cartesian and and divides the the mind from the body. So sometimes when we're thinking, as as you'll be seeing me and watch me now, every time I talk I move my hands and it's really difficult for me not to do that Mm -hmm. because that's a physical manifestation of my of my thought behaviors or thoughts and and it comes out as a movement behavior so when you're looking at somebody with a chronic pain issue some of it might be about are they demonstrating that they're not in in a good way um, from their thoughts and an emotional point of view so they may want to demonstrate that something's not okay and that's probably about the best you could narrow it down to something's not okay so they it, it becomes somewhat um, obvious that they're demonstrating to you that something's in uh, pain. It used to be kind of labelled as, you know, pain behaviours and what else signs and all sorts of other things that that, um, people who work in rehabilitation and musculoskeletal medicine and and physiotherapy may understand. But um, these things for me are just usually a a physical behaviour output of something that may be going on from an, an emotional or a thought point of view. Okay, thanks for that. So let's be honest, some clinicians can be put off by the diagnosis of chronic pain. What's your advice you'd give clinicians when approaching the assessment? Hmm. First of all, imagine how the patient might be feeling as well. Um, but I agree that, that to an extent, it, it's a tricky area and a lot of people get intimidated and put off by it. Hmm. So it is intimidating. I, I, Lester Jones has a really good way of framing it, I suppose, he would say that pain is always going to be complex, but it may present simply. So the temptation is a lot of the time to try and just treat it or assess it from that simple presentation point of view. It is ultimately easier to try and do that, mm. but it doesn't necessarily get you as far as you would might want to, to get. I think the first thing are the two suggestions I have. One is 
listen with genuine curiosity. It's an incredibly old piece of advice. It doesn't really diminish the importance of it. But in a subjective assessment, I'm aiming to pick out the important events for them that they may think has been feeding their problem. In a lot of that, you have to follow their logic. Sometimes to you, it may not seem logical. But the reality is, you, well, at least superficially, it may seem illogical, but um, it's part of a process of validation, and the validation process in itself is really important. So you mentioned listening with genuine curiosity. What do you mean by that? I think the thing is that a lot of the time we're under pressure. Certainly as, as physiotherapists, we're under pressure to get an assessment and some kind of treatment done within a, a fairly strict time frame, and, and physiotherapists tend to like to pride themselves on running on time. Mm-hmm. So what that tends to do is that when we are doing an assessment, we might go through a mental checklist. I need to ask this, I need to ask that, I need to ask the other, I need to clear all the red flags and so on and so forth. The danger I find in that is that you're not actually listening. What you're doing is formulating your next question while the other person is speaking. Yeah, absolutely. So what I mean by genuine curiosity is make it more like a conversation. So if somebody mentions, as an example, if somebody comes in and says, uh, or I ask them, tell me about how you think your knee pain behaves at school. And the answers I get back from that question are, oh, I'm just so tired and everything I do, and between classes on my muscles feel so tired and I get to home and I need to go to bed and I need to go to bed and so on. They're talking about fatigue and tiredness all the time. I might stop and interject and go, that's interesting. Is it tiredness or is it pain that interferes most with what you want to be able to do? Mm. So if I'd have just been formulating my next question based on what I think I needed to assess next or or tick the box of, uh, I would have missed it. And that's probably a poor example, but it's the idea is that you you listen to what they have to say and in some ways you let them lead where Mm. the narrative goes. It takes a lot more time though. Yes, Okay, great. That really helps my understanding of listening with genuine curiosity. Thanks for that. Mm. So moving on to your second point for an assessment. Um, I would suggest rather than taking an impairment-based assessment approach, this is very physiotherapy terminology and I apologize for those. I might be able to explain that in a moment. But rather than do an impairment-based assessment, do a problem-based assessment. Okay, I am going to cut you in there and say what is a problem-based assessment versus impairment-based assessment? best thing to probably think about it is is if if you're looking at an impairment based assessment you're probably thinking about the body part in question so let's stick with the example of knee pain Mm -hmm. um so you might say okay for a a knee pain I, i want to have a look at various parts of the knee um how what the range of motion is stress test the ligaments look at how the patella motion works so on and so forth palpation and you're doing very much the impairment about the knee becomes very much focused on the body part. Contrary to that, if you do a problem-based assessment, you say, show me what it's like to get up from the floor. How is that? What happens to your knee when you do that? And well, that's what you're observing is what happens to the knee when they do it. What are their movement choices? Similarly, you might say, well, you know, uh, you might not say it. So can you just roll over onto your front and you'll see whether or not they are avoiding using the knee, whether or not the range of motion is full. And if they're unaware of being assessed, at the knee, you might find that they have different movement behaviours to when you say, I'm going to assess your knee now, and then they freeze up because yep. they think it's going to be painful. So that's why I think it's more useful to do a problem-based assessment. If you think of it in terms of the WHO, the World Health Organization, International Classification of Function, Disability and Health. 
Wow, yep. <laughs> Got that out in one sentence. It would be more body structures versus function versus participation. So it's more the function and participation that you would be looking at as a physiotherapist. And then you can drill down to what you think might be the implicated structures. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. So we start off with a problem-based assessment. Hmm. That is That would be my second piece of advice. Start off with a problem-based assessment. Okay, fantastic. I would suggest that by the time somebody comes to see you with a persisting pain problem, they may have been through a number of these impairment-based assessments already, whether that's actually from an imaging point of view, from um, you know, uh, whether it's an ultrasound, an MRI, or whether it's going to see orthopedics in clinic or whether it's going to see a physiotherapist. They'll have had a number of impairment-based assessments already. That may not have revealed what needs to be revealed out of the problem because what it tends to do is bias you towards it being structural and pathoanatomical. I think that can get you into strife quite a lot with a persisting pain problem. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have hypotheses about what structure you're involved. Just hold those hypotheses a little more lightly than you might have done in the past. And I think it's really crucial that physiotherapists in particular, because obviously I'm talking from a physiotherapy point of view, understand that they have those skills already, both the skills to be able to work through a problem-based assessment or a functional assessment. I don't like using the word functional because I think our OT colleagues have cursed us for using the word functional and now they have to use occupational performance to be understood what they mean. So I would suggest that we all have the capacity to be able to listen with curiosity as well. Okay, that's really helpful. So with our assessment, we've got listening with genuine curiosity and doing a problem-based assessment. That sounds like it would take a lot of time. <laughs> yes, I acknowledge that um, I, I, I do have the luxury of time. And in some workplaces, the time that I'm suggesting may be required might be tricky to negotiate. I think, bear in mind, there's two things. The validation process of doing an, an assessment, a subjective assessment in that way, is in and of itself often therapeutic. People come away thinking... At last, somebody's actually listened to what is going on for me. And I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. My suggested sales pitch to whoever you need to uh, say is, I'm going to book me more time for this patient, is that by by allowing that time, it, it does two things. It gives you clearer signposts for what you might want to look at during your problem-based assessment. And secondly, it can actually save time ultimately because you don't end up going down these kind of therapeutic dead ends of kind of say okay we're going to do this 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 is not working okay let's wind back and reassess and then we'll do this 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 is still not working and so you have much more of a kind of um, a broader overview of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between your approach to children with chronic pain versus adolescents with chronic pain? I think actually that's a very good question thank you. I think the difference is more marked between adults and uh, young people in general and I think the reason for that is that my perception is that children and adolescents are more disposed to change that doesn't mean everybody is is disposed to change they're just more so and that is from a kind of cognitive emotional and physiological point of view simplistically I'm going to suggest that the difference between children and adolescents pretty much fits with the kind of um, cognitive development that most of us in paediatrics already know about, but though if you don't work in paediatrics, it's worth revisiting, and there are plenty of textbooks that will take you through that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, as a rule of thumb, below the age of 10, say, um, I think children respond better to things that are you know, concrete. This is what you need to do. This is how many times you need to do it. 
um, tell me if you did it this time, how many times it, you would have done it if you did it three times a day and so on and so forth. And, and, and make sure that they've got a very clear idea of what they need to do. The other thing is that you're much more likely to have to pull in the parent as a therapeutic ally yep. in order to get that done. The difference, I think, with adolescence is that you see much more individuation behavior starting to come out. And when you do get that, that means that they tend to um, have a lot of people who are already trying to motivate them. External motivators, extrinsic motivators. Mm -hmm. So their parents, teachers, sports coaches, even their peers um, are all kind of telling them what they should be doing, how they should be. If you come in as another adult in authority, what would tend to happen is that you're probably going to get a low level of adherence to the advice that you give because you're just being telling them what to do. So I think it's really important to probably think about motivation and how that influences your progress during rehabilitation. So if you're in a situation where you're goal setting, goal setting must have an intrinsic value for the individual you're seeing if they're an adolescent because mm -hmm. if there isn't some kind of value attached to that, Again, I, I really believe you're not going to get much adherence to the advice that you're giving. Okay, so how do you actually discover what each adolescent's intrinsic motivation is? Well, it's rather like Melbourne weather. It'll, it'll change pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so again, that's where the curiosity comes in. I think easy to dismiss an adolescent's motivation may not actually be there and all they're interested in is social media and so on and so forth. In acceptance commitment therapy or ACT, um, which is a you know a cognitive behavioral therapy of sorts um, there are ways in which you can identify somebody's values mm -hmm. so one of the ways you can do that they actually have a, a whole pack of cards called the values cards and you can put them out on the table and they can choose which ones have meaning for them and then you kind of pair them down to a, a group of core values that they think identifies things that they are important to them those would be, I would suggest, intrinsic motivators for them, those values. So if you want to get back to playing netball, why is it you want, what is it you value about being in a netball team? Is it the fact that you are all working towards a common goal? Is it the fact that um, you can shine better when you're in a team? Is it the fact that you love to be sociable? Is it the fact that you value physical activity? All those things are really important, but if you latch your goal onto one of those things, you are much more likely to make it meaningful when things get tough. Mm. They're more likely to keep going because you can say, and you can be hopefully not manipulative, but you can turn around and say, well, it is tough, I agree, but look at what the prize is. Mm. Look at what that means to you. Keep going, you can do it. Okay, I can really see how finding out an adolescent's intrinsic motivation and linking that to a goal would help in the rehabilitation. Thanks for that. So what would be your three key take-home messages? The first one would be invest in adequate time. Adequate time to listen with curiosity, as we've said before, but also in trying to form a, a robust therapeutic relationship. The second would be start with a problem-based assessment rather than an impairment-based one. So in other words, look at what they can do and how the pain that they're talking about interferes with that rather than just focus on the body part that they're complaining about. And then remember that persisting pain is always a multidimensional problem. Avoid approaching it with a unidimensional mindset. Well, thank you so much, Blaze, for talking today about your experience as a physiotherapist in the Chronic Pain Clinic. Thank you, Sarah, for inviting me along. 
Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.